0: Welcome back to the Segmentus Podcast, everybody. I'm Kaylee Fritz. I'm here with Ronan. Hiya. Uh, Ronan, I just want to say that um, our our analysis of today's stage yesterday, I feel like we're pretty spot on. I think we said definitely a breakaway, right? Yeah, what did we say? There was a Snowball's Chance in Hell of a Sprint? Yeah, I think that's exactly what we said. Yeah. Just rewriting history here. Well, we are. We're, <laughs> we're standing at the finish line. It's 10K to go. We're doing a little. Uh, roadside pre-chat before the chat again at the moment mate mohoric mohoric is off the front with 43 seconds and we were just saying that the group behind the closer they get to the finish line the less they're going to be working together so it seems pretty likely he might make the line at this point
1: yes yeah, it's, it's one that's another one of those scenarios where you, you know you look at it on paper and you go right a, a group chasing a solo rider sure that the group is going to catch them but there's so, so many different dynamics at play so many different tactics and Exactly, as you said, the closer they get to the finish, the less guys are going to want to use their legs. The closer they even get to the sole Rider in front, you often find that a group, you'll start seeing guys start of thinking, we're so close to this guy now, we're going to catch him, I'm going to hold off and save my energy and and that sometimes can mean that the group doesn't catch the solo Rider as well. So certainly looking good for Maharaj at the moment, but there is 10K to go and I think he has, if I remember right, one more lump to get over.
0: Let's talk about the reasons why we were so right today. Uh, meaning that you know the reasons why a breakaway succeeded. So uh, I think the assumption coming in from from obviously much lesser pundits than us was that, well, that Quickstep would hold it all together, that that, uh, that they don't have, would have enough reason to do so, given that there's only two more shots for Cavendish to better Merckx's record, and that they would probably have some help from Alps and Phoenix and maybe Israel Startup Nation, which we did actually see that they gave it a shot to t- try to hold it together earlier today. That didn't happen, though.
1: I think I think many pundits were just so deflated after yesterday's <laughs> stage that, you know, there there, there wasn't uh, maybe after this whole tour, even there was so much predictability that, you know, the, the, we just assumed it was going to be the boring scenario that none of us want to see. But what we have seen today is just a reminder that regardless of the course, regardless of of anything, it's the riders who make the race. And it can be a pan flat day or it can be a mountainous stage. And either of those can be hard or easy. And we've seen today has been yeah, it's been absolute uh, chaos at one part in the middle of the stage with attacks going left, right and centre. We've had crashes with a tough intermediate sprint. And you know, what we ended up seeing was a group of 20 or so who forced herself clear on a day that it looked like would be controllable for a sprint team. But so late into a three week tour, you know, it's, it's always difficult to predict. On top of that, you know, it's eight man teams now. So you have seven riders to ride for Cavendish. Alpeson, yes, they might have rode for, um, for Philipson, but we've seen that they've, he's been beaten by Cavendish time and time again. So there, there's probably very little, or there's probably quite a lot of reluctance to just deliver Cavendish to the line for for another win. And all those things factored in with the, the fact that this is the last chance for anybody who isn't a time trialist or isn't a sprinter to get a stage one. There's so many teams who don't even have a stage one or a podium to show for this race so far. So all those things have just combined for... Uh, the least expected day to quote <laughs> to quote uh, one uh, teams uh, netflix documentary
0: and as we watch right now 8k to go that group behind mohoric is really just they're not working together anymore we, we saw it at almost exactly 20k to go all of a sudden they went from a nice rotating pace line super efficient everyone working together and all of a sudden guys stop coming up the other side and it they lose that rotation all of a sudden, you've got a guy taking a pull and then another guy taking a pull and then another guy taking a pull. And they're looking at each other in between each one of those. And that is just enough to drop the KPH just a couple and keep a guy like Mohoric off the front. Exactly.
1: And with you know, nine riders in this chasing group, that's just too many to work effectively as well. And on top of that, you've got. Uh, a Trek-Segafredo pairing. So a lot of the riders will be sort of thinking, I can hide here at the back. The other eight riders will do a, an extra turn and that doesn't work. And then there'll be riders looking and going, well, there's two Trek-Segafredo riders. They have to do the most of the work. But, you know, again, it's uh, it's just all playing into the hands of Mohoric here at the moment.
0: Well, I'm just glad that we called this one correctly. Uh, it'd Be really embarrassing not to, I feel like, on a day like today. And so we'll be back once again after the finish.
1: I am predicting a solo winner. For tomorrow's stage, I can, I can guarantee it neither be a solo one or tomorrow.
0: I don't know what, what if, what if one rider catches another rider right across the line? Is that, is that a solo victory? In my book? Yes. <laughs> All right. We'll be back in 6.6 kilometers. Uh, when we know who wins this bike race. All right. We are back. We are back. It is now a couple hours after the stage has wrapped up. We are at our lovely hotel here. Ah, uh, there's we have our own pool, Ronan, our own pool. It is ours. for the night. It's it's literally ours for the night. It's, it's well, um, the other people. Here. <laughs> it is ours. They're not going to use it. We're going to use it before we go any further into today's episode. The mountains are behind us, and we're almost in Paris. Throughout the tour, there's been one thing the pros almost exclusively rely on and that would be tubular tires and whether the riders are hitting the climbs the sprints or the transition stages of Latour they want tubulars they can trust the Continental competition is exactly that tire they're trusted by six of the teams at Latour which is a quarter of all the teams here and as we know they're often unofficially used by other teams as well Conti competition tires are handmade in Germany using a combination of black chili compound and vectrin puncture protection. So if you're going the tubular route, ask your LBS to install a set of Conti competition tubulars. Thanks to Continental for sponsoring today's episode. Now, Ronan, you heard from us earlier. Well, we we heard from us. They, they heard from us. We spoke earlier uh, three hours ago now ish three and a half hours ago now uh but that was like six seven k to go something like that we weren't sure exactly what was gonna happen we were pretty sure it was gonna happen but we weren't exactly sure it was gonna happen since then it happened mate mohoric has won another stage of the tour de france congratulations to him in pretty spectacular fashion uh took advantage of that breakaway just really not working all that well together at the end there to go solo but but I think it's important to, to note that it's not that that breakaway was working terribly. In fact, they were working quite well together for a while. It, he was just super, super, super strong today.
1: Uh, he was definitely super strong today. As we've seen numerous times in, in this Tour de France, Mohorich is is yeah, pretty much on fire. You could use that often overused term in the form of his life, but... He can is. He's won two stages of the Tour de France. He was in the break yesterday as well, going up uh, the Tour Malay. Uh, He's been in the break numerous other times as well. Uh, so clearly the rider on form. If, yes, they were working together behind, but it, the, the the cohesion of that group wasn't exactly as good as it could have been. Um, we mentioned that while, while we are standing watching the, the final 10K there, but, uh, you know, that's... Not to take anything away from mohoric that, that I think the cohesion really fell away when they realised they just weren't catching him. It was at 40 seconds, then it was 50 seconds then it was a minute and you know the writers behind are thinking about second place then and that second place was actually in- incredibly impressive as well Christoph laporte of Cofidis, uh it was a slight drag up to the finish i'm not sure if that came across on tv or not but it, it was a drag up to the finish and he basically just did a seated effort uh let out uh casper Pedersen was on his way sort of let out what wasn't really a sprint was just a, a huge seated effort uh and Pedersen couldn't come around couldn't couldn't, uh, couldn't even try to. There,
0: there was a moment about 150, maybe 100 meters to go where you could see Pedersen look behind him. Who He'd been on the wheel then for a while, but he looked behind him because he was like, I need to make sure I have third here because I'm clearly not coming around Christophe Laporte. Not going to happen, and it turned out to be the case. Actually came across with a with a, a little bit of a gap, not enough for actually a, a time difference, but a little bit of a gap over Casper Pedersen. We were standing next to um, Mitch Docker, actually, who's here with the Cycling Podcast. Uh, we were standing next to him as that was happening. And he, he sort of remarked uh, about both Laporte and Pedersen, mostly about Laporte, how kind of astonishing that succeeded effort was. He never even got out of the saddle. He just literally put his head down, sat down, and put out, I don't know how many watts, 6 700 watts for like a minute and a half. It was pretty unbelievable. I'd say it was more than that. Yeah, <laughs> he's, was, a, he's a he's a big guy, yeah. <laughs> and he was
1: going very fast off that hill. <laughs> it
0: was pretty impressive. Bit of a headwind as well, which might have been kind of keeping guys in the saddle. They realized that they had they were one they were climbing, and two they had a bit of a headwind, uh, and that was keeping you know basically if you get up out of the saddle you get you're you're less uh, you more aerodynamic drag, and so a lot of seated sprints in that finish there.
1: Brief note on today's stage as well, 207 kilometers, long, four hours, 19 minutes, not long, <laughs> 47.9 or effectively 48, 48 kilometers per hour. Yeah. So uh, to pull off that kind of effort at the end of such a, a fast day is... Uh,
0: and not really flat, like no. f- sort of flat, flat compared to yesterday. I think it was
1: 1200 meters of climbing. Yeah. So, <laughs>
0: but, so not flat, not even a little bit flat. Yeah impressive all around but the real story of the day came at the finish line and there's been much debate you know we're sitting here in the press room or we we were sitting in the press room surrounded by our our reporter colleagues some of whom who have covered the the tour de france for a very long time there was some debate as to the purpose and source of the uh basically the finish line salute that mate mohoric used as he crossed the line Describe it for me, Ronan.
1: Uh,
0: he effectively held
1: his finger up to his lips, doing the "shh" sign, as a kind of international speak for "shut your mouth," <laughs> <laughs> and then he did the zip lips um, sign, which is well. What's the international?
0: What's that? The international sign for? Um, Omerta?
1: Mm, I think so. <laughs> yes.
0: So, so he spoke. About this in the press conference. And before we talk about it, you should hear from him. So here's Mohoric on why he did that.
2: It was just a sign, uh, sign to show uh, to all people uh, that question our performances to to be mindful uh, that we are making huge sacrifices with our uh, work, with our, uh, with our nutrition, with our training plans, plans uh, race plans. Uh, with all the time you spend away from home in training camps. And we all work hard, it's the biggest race in the world, to come here ready, you know? And we performed at a good level this year. And we also performed at a good level in the past. Uh, Obviously, our integrity has been a little bit questioned with this investigation ongoing. But uh, that brought us even closer together as, as riders and also the team. And we were even more determined to prove that we have nothing to hide. We collaborated fully with the police. And uh, we are here to focus on bike race now. It's it's the biggest event in the world. And also today we try to make our point that we are one of the best teams in the world. And we are on the even play field. And yes, we just all want to do the best in this uh, beautiful event.
0: So basically he was saying it was a shush to the media and fans and people on the internet basically claiming that his uh, his team is dirty that uh, there was reason for the police raid that happened earlier this week. he's tired of it and he was basically trying to defend himself and saying you guys can shut up and this stage win is I don't know proof uh, that, doesn't, that doesn't really work that way. Uh, <laughs> but he was clearly riding angry today and it was on his mind when he came across the line because that's what he decided to do. It is unfortunate. It's an unfortunate gesture because the last time uh, that particular gesture made headlines, particularly the zipped lips, was in 2004 when Filippo Simeoni headed up the road and Lance Armstrong uh, was apparently angry at him, chased him up the road. And of course, the dynamics were such that uh, the yellow jersey, Lance Armstrong in particular, the winner of at that point uh, was that six Tours de France. He chases you. He ends up in the breakaway. That breakaway is not staying away, right? All of a, all of a sudden, all of Lance's, uh, well, everybody else fighting for the podium, everybody else trying to win that Tour de France is not going to let a breakaway with Lance Armstrong go up the road. So it was effectively it was a way to kill the break without having to chase the break. Um, he gets into the breakaway and the rest of the breakaway riders are basically begging him to just get the hell out of there. And he says, I will go back to the Peloton if Simeone goes back with me. And at some point, Simeone goes, okay, fine. I will go back with you. Now, why did he do this? He did this because not too long before that, Filippo Simeone had testified in a, I believe it was in Bologna, in an Italian court against Michele Ferrari, who at that point in time was still, you have to to take yourself back to 2004. At that point in time, did most people suspect that he was a dope doctor? Yes. Had it actually been sort of fully proven and had he been removed from the the sport yet? No. And so that is essentially what Armstrong was angry about. Armstrong was angry that Simeone had testified against his dope doctor and he was not going to let a rider who had just testified against his dope doctor go up the road and potentially score a stage win. So it was a vindictive thing. And then... Shortly after that, there's a famous clip, it can be found on YouTube, I think we linked to it from a story today, of Lance Armstrong zipping his lips. Meaning, if you are going to speak out, I am going to make sure that you cannot win bike races. Don't speak out. That's what the zipper lips meant. Now, we're in a very different situation at the moment. I can 100% see how people would look at that gesture and go, well, that... He's either um, he's either not particularly well informed of the history of the sport, or he just made the Omerta gesture, right? That like that there's 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 sort of no there's no real kind of in between there, and I can very much see how people are, are saying, uh, and a lot of people are, and and again in, in the press room today, people were were saying this like, wow, is that is that just an admission of guilt? I personally don't think so. I personally think he's, you know, he would have been nine years old in 2004. Um, I think it's possible that he was sort of not fully aware of what that gesture was. I also think that riders don't often plan these things out particularly far in advance, and maybe just sort of did that because he was angry at the media and angry at 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 just everybody questioning their their integrity, really. Which he he said in that clip there. He, you know, the world is questioning Bahrain Victorious's integrity right now and that had him angry and he did the zip lips thing because he wants the world to shut up now is that just naive i don't know i can't imagine in 2021 an overt uh gesture like that i, I just can't imagine that flying either in the peloton in in like anywhere right if it was intentional and if the the sort of purpose was known the Armstrong situation, like we knew exactly why he was doing it the moment he did it. Right, everybody was pretty well aware at that point of what was happening. Uh, You know, this is this is this is post-Walsh book. This is like we're pretty far into the you know the Peloton is probably doping kind of uh, understanding within the sport, and we also were aware that you know Filippo Simeone had just had just testified against Ferrari, and we were probably. You know, you could draw those lines and draw those conclusions, and there was sort of like a, a, an understand, an understandable, not understandable, an understood purpose behind that. Um, behind that gesture today, man, I God, I hope not. <laughs> I think it was just really, really ill informed and really uh, ill conceived. And oh man, I. I if I was the press officer for Mate Mohorj tonight, I would be uh, providing a, a history lesson uh, in the sport and maybe saying, don't ever, ever, ever do that again.
1: I kind of wish I had done a survey in the peloton to see who knew about Armstrong's zip lips thing
0: <laughs> in some time over the
1: last two weeks. But right. I probably would have assumed that everybody knew about that. Could be wrong, but um it, it is it, and that was one of the first tour de france i remember watching uh 2004 we're older than mate though yes yeah. yes i think my first memory of the tour is like lose already when armstrong was pulled mm-hmm. off his bike and then my second memory is what's this all about uh which was a year later in the ziplips thing um but having sort of i, I don't know Mari mohoric at all but i sort of seen him in the mix zone yesterday he was very angry um, he gave you know some interviews there. Uh, we had we had uh, some quotes from him as well on on the site yesterday. And there was there was one interview he did. I couldn't catch it. It was in a different language and it was a bit further away from me. But he, he he sort of gave the interview and then he maybe just took off. But it it seemed very much like he took off in anger. And he looked like a man on a mission yesterday to sort of you know make make a statement. And we seen him in the break yesterday. It didn't work out. He got in the break today again. And I think that, you know, I, I think he really was riding on emotion uh, today and yesterday. And unfortunately, that mo- emotion was probably mostly anger. Um, and, and, you know, if, if you were a clean rider, you would be quite angry if this had happened to your team. Um, and I, I think he probably used that quite a bit in that final 25 kilometers, that that motivation and that, that anger to really sort of, yeah, get, get the most out of himself and, I kind of think that when he just got to the line that, yeah, he didn't really think it out too well. Um, it, the intention was to say, you know, uh, stop saying these things about us, we're clean, but it just came across so badly. And if he just that particular. If you had yeah, just done the shush,
0: yeah. we wouldn't be having this conversation. Or he could
1: have done, sometimes you see in football uh, soccer that players hold their, their hands to their ears right. to say, let me hear you now, what are you saying now? That would have been perfectly fine as well, <laughs> oh. but it's just this one particular gesture that yeah, really, um, yeah, really, really didn't go down well. He, he did this, if I remember, right, he did the the shoe slips first and then the zip lips. So yep. maybe yep. he just got a bit carried away. It, it, it's, <laughs> it, uh, I, I don't know how. Uh, dopers think but i i imagine they try not to make it try not to admit it in public and that basically is a a public admission i think
0: yeah because that's the thing is it's either a public admission or just like a moment of stupidity right Mm. and and yeah like i mate mohoric is not lance armstrong that that much is very clear lance armstrong is probably the only rider in the last well maybe in the sports history but probably not in you know in the last in the modern era who who would have the, well, just the audacity to do that and to basically make a public admission and just, you know, brush off his shoulder, right? Because he was asked about it afterward. Simeone was asked about it afterward. Simeone basically said, well, yeah, we, because the two of them came back from the breakaway to the Peloton together, had a conversation. At one point, Armstrong even had his hand on Simeone's shoulder. Simeone was asked about it after the stage, and he basically said, I can't tell you uh it, it's i believe the exact quote was Armstrong and I spoke as the peloton was catching us but I prefer not to say what he said it was too serious <laughs> so yeah i mean that 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 was a case of and here's another important difference that was a case of of Armstrong enforcing the omerta which again was the sort of the the, the pact within the peloton to never never speak of doping ever and Simeone had broken the Omerta. And so that was Armstrong enforcing that. What what would Mohorich have been enforcing today? Because there's been no he wasn't talking about a rider who was spoken out. He wasn't talking about any anything in particular. All he was talking about was a a raid which appears to have pulled up nothing, uh, and rumors, basically. And and, and rumors that don't, as far as we can tell, have, have any real foundation or at least any evidence. Um the foundation or not is is unknown. But no evidence at this point in time, so it's it is a different, it's a different moment, and therefore clearly, I think, means a different thing. Um, but man, what an unfortunate way to end that! Like, way to ruin your second stage win, right? That's that's the if this if this kid's clean, what an unfortunate, unfortunate thing for him! All because he didn't watch the 2004 Tour de France or something like that. <laughs> anyway, we don't need to spend any more time on this. Um, I thought it was. Worth worth doing a, a brief history bit on the Simeone incident because I, I they like people just that's a long time ago now. I'm sure that we have listeners out there who weren't watching the race at that point in time or have never heard of it.
1: Mohoritz was one of the first writers to use a super talk to great effect as well. Maybe he was just telling the UCA to shush. Look, I, I can still win races without my super talk.
0: <laughs> that's true. It was the 2013 World Championships, I believe, and he won the junior race. What was the 23 race? one or the he won both at, at, through, it's through his, his th- career so he did he won both at some point that's why I can't remember uh anyway he won it was that year and yes he he basically was one of the first riders to use a supertuck on television uh and it kind of spread from there so yeah kind of the original the originator of the supertuck <laughs> anyway
1: i suppose we we should probably mention that as well he has won junior and on the 23 world titles he's won Grand he's Tour a, stages he's a and monster. the other two Grand Tours. Yeah, it's it's not surprising that he's winning
0: Grand Tour stages. I guess not surprising in the least. Yeah, just yet another Slovenian superstar at the moment. Hmm. We actually have one more Mahorich related thing. This is a little tech thing, just a little tidbit that came out of uh, a chat with him. He runs a 55-tooth chain ring. fifty-five tooth uh, front chainring. fifty-five, and he basically said, "Well, actually, why 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 would I repeat it? We have the audio. This is what he said."
2: My, it's my little secret. I always use 55-42 uh, uh, chainring because I think it gives you advantage in positioning in the peloton especially when the road is going slightly down and the speeds are super high because everybody nowadays uses a 58 chainring in the time trials but then you're on your own no? and the speed is not quite so high but the whole peloton moving that's, that's super high speed so I don't see a reason why people use 53 or 54 on the on the actual stages where the speed is even higher than in time trials. Uh, I'm quite happy with my 55-42. Some of my teammates, they joke because we have a special WhatsApp group where we say our, our wishes for the gears and the wheels that we want to use. And when I put 55, then uh, some of them jokingly say, yeah, then I want a 56 or a 58, especially the bigger guys, <laughs> because they make fun of me. But yeah, I think, I'm, uh, I, think I did. Uh, I needed that today. And I think it helped me a little bit to recover in those post down sections.
0: Big boy gears. People who use 53s are just soft. <laughs> <laughs> Meanwhile, most amateurs are on 50s these days, right? Man. I'm that's riding big a bike gear. with a 46. Right. <laughs> <laughs> that's true. The Pinarello you've got here at the Tour de France, uh, we've been doing these short little rides in the morning and, and rodents on a 46 front <laughs> chainring.
1: My front. My outside chain ring is almost as small as his inside chain ring. <laughs> or the other way of looking at it is his inside chain ring is almost as big as my outside chain ring.
0: <laughs> yeah, so he's on a 55-42, which is something we see at like Perrier Bay quite frequently because there's uh, no big climbs. And I'm assuming that he does not run, not run those gears on days like yesterday. Uh, but still, impressive. A massive, massive gear. I and mean, we saw his cadence at the end today. He's, he's, a, he's a low cadence guy. He doesn't. Mm. He's not a spin to win kind of kind of fella and so I guess not too surprising that if you're gonna if you're if your happy place is like 85 rpm which looked like he was basically doing that for the last I think 12. that
1: was his peak for the day 85 <laughs> probably
0: 85 yeah maybe 75 if that's where your happy place is then yeah you just need a big old gear on there
1: well. well yes yes and no there there is actually other benefits to it as well and we we have a I think we have a sp- a sort of an episode of the Nerd Alert podcast coming up with some sort of uh, tech insight into the Tour de France, and and one one thing we looked at there is gear selection. We heard from from one or two writers about that, so we'll have that out hopefully in the near future. But this isn't exactly isn't exactly something new. And one team that sort of stood out to me, maybe not as well known, but the uh, the rebel well tight team, continental team in in England or a uh, continental team in Britain they've been running pretty big chain rings against 54s and 55s for the last few years and and that's sort of they uh dan Bigham, who's sort of known for his uh work in aerodynamics and um, optimizing time trial setups and that he he switched uh, most of that team across to 55 just for the sort of just for the extra bit of efficiency you can get in, in your chain line, most of their riders are not spinning a 55-11 like we've seen Maharts doing today, but there is actually a benefit from from using a, a bigger chain ring. It just reduces the, the articulation in the chain, and, and there's a slight increase in in, in drivetrain efficiency as a, as a result of that. But didn't sound like Maharts, that's why Maharts was doing it. He was just looking for the extra... The extra speed, basically the extra horsepower.
0: Yeah, and because it was a rolling stage today, uh, you know there are long sort of false flat downhills, and you're in a group that's well, they average forty-eight. So you're in a group that frequently is probably doing close to sixty k an hour, right? If you're going downhill, so it makes sense, really. Jungle Bob. Jungle Bob.
1: Bob Bob Jungles. Yeah, I think he had a fifty-six on when he won that stage of. UAE tour or Dubai tour or some tour a few years ago finished with descent and he had specifically put on the fifty six and Hell held off the chasing pack.
0: Well, like you said, it it moves you up the cassette, right? Effectively, not effectively, it does. It moves you up the cassette, going the same speed, and the the gears are tighter up there. You have a little bit of that 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 drivetrain efficiency improvement. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of reasons to do that. I think. You just don't see it that often still. There's a lot of riders on 54s. There's a mm. lot of riders on 54s. Particularly the SRAM riders are mostly on essentially like a pro-only setup. I think you can buy them now.
1: You can buy them now, but it's parameter only. Right. So so,
0: so they, they're on a 54 version of of the new ETAP stuff. Um, which they basically asked for specifically because they're like, Well, we do four-hour tour stages at 48 kilometers an hour. <laughs> we we need different gearing than regular people. And they got it. They got it from SRAM. Just a little tidbit, fun little tidbit about Mohorich. Is that our first
1: Nerd Nugget of the Tour? That was
0: our first Nerd Nugget of the Tour, I think.
1: It's kind of bad form for the tech guy not to be bringing a daily Nerd Nugget, isn't it?
0: That's all right. Well, well, you're forgiven. I think it's time to move on to tomorrow's stage. We have the final time trial of the Tour de France and also the penultimate stage of the Tour de France. Uh, I, I... I heard recently that the word penultimate is overused on at least the American broadcast of the Tour de France, so I apologize for just using it just now. I've not been watching the American broadcast of the Tour de France, so I don't really know.
1: Well, at best, this is a penultimate day that you'll hear us using the penultimate word.
0: Well, tomorrow would be. Tomorrow would be the penultimate day.
1: And tomorrow would be the last day we're saying penultimate.
0: That's, oh, that's true. Today, <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're way ahead of me, Ronan. <laughs> Today is the penultimate day that was the penultimate use of penultimate you're correct yes tomorrow is the penultimate stage <laughs> the final time trial of the tour de france ronan do we think um do we think we're gonna see a repeat of last year
1: uh, i'm so excited for like the, the tour de france have obviously brought this time trial onto the second last stage of the tour de france to try and you know shake up the gc action on, on the second last day and oh no wait we're on uh yeah sorry <laughs> Just realized the guy's leading by five and a half minutes. So,
0: <laughs> yeah. However, however, second and third, there is a six-second gap at the moment. Five forty-five, five fifty-one behind Tadej Uh Vingegaard, and Carapaz, still right there. And then there's a pretty healthy gap back to Ben O'Connor. Brief side note: incredible, incredible from Ben O'Connor. He is going to have. He's going to have to have a good ride to keep wilco kelderman off his back because wilco's a, a decent enough time trialist ben o'connor not known as an amazing time trialist he's currently got 32 seconds on wilco kelderman so not a massive massive gap but fourth place at tour de france for ben o'connor the first time trial wilco kelderman beat ben o'connor
1: by seven seconds so
0: not that far off then
1: kelderman did have a really off day yeah on the, the first time trial so uh, that's, you know, way below the, what we were expecting from uh, Kelderman on that day. Um, but yeah, we, we could see a repeat. I'm not sure how, of course, Ben O'Connor wasn't really in the GC battle at, at that point, in, or at least certainly wasn't at the point, the end of the, the GC battle in the Stage 5 time trial. So um, perhaps he, he didn't go quite as uh, well there as, as he could have done had he needed to hold off someone chasing him from behind and defend his fourth place.
0: Mm. We shall see. I
1: think, uh, I think, unfortunately, though, that the second and third places are, are pretty much sewn up as well. Vinigo in the first time trial was third on the stage at uh, 27 seconds down, uh, whereas Richard Carp has finished 23rd on the stage at a minute and 42. So if anything, we could just see those positions sort of confirmed
0: rather than change. Really. I think so. I think so. I think there's going to be not a lot of... Um Do not expect a repeat of last year. (laughs) Can you imagine? Vinegar takes five minutes and 45 seconds. Of course,
1: the reason we're being so definitive about there being no chance of uh, Bogacá losing tomorrow's time trial is because we're actually hoping that that will then happen. (laughs) (laughs) Not that he will lose, but just that we get some some sort of uh, excitement in the final time trial.
0: Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. The Miles Sabla at the moment... Is none other than Bocamoloma. I think someone picked him in the preview show. I need to go look. Anybody pick Bocamoloma in the preview show for the Miles Saba? I think I did. You might have.
1: Pretty sure I did. You might
0: have. Now, it's not a sure thing. It is absolutely not a a sure thing because Sergio Henao could lose two plus minutes to Tade Pugaccio tomorrow, which would put him in the running for the Miles Saba because right now he's at 58-26. It's also very tight between Bocamoloma and Frank Bonamore, who has been one of the most aggressive riders. I think he's actually in the running for the Supercombatif uh, category. And he, so he was one of the riders who took a ton of time today because he was in the breakaways again today. Took what, a fif- like 15 minutes on on uh, Bocamolama. Put himself back into contention. He is now at one hour, 21 seconds and Bocamoloma. Boca Moloma is at one hour, four seconds. So we have a 15-second gap at the moment between first and second in the Maio Sabla competition. So close. It's so tight right now. And I was just, I mean, like talk about tactical genius on Bonamour's part to wait until today when Molima really doesn't have a whole lot of opportunities to defend, wait until today to pull himself back 15 minutes, get close enough to the Maio Sabla to potentially take it in Paris. It's uh, it's it's really the only battle that's come down to the final day. So, KOM jersey has been decided. Uh, Tadej Pogacar will win that. Points jersey has been decided. Mark Cavendish will win that. The question now, of course, is whether he will take his thirty-fifth stage win on the Champs Elysees. Uh, you know, we did say yesterday that we thought. He was a likely winner of today's stage, but
1: I think he th- said he was a definite.
0: Eat. He said he was a definite <laughs> winner of today's stage. In my defense, a lot of teams thought the same thing. They were they were prepared for breakaway days, and a lot of and a lot of obviously the teams that hadn't won stage yet wanted one. But I actually spoke with uh, spoke with Michael Morcow, uh after the stage, and he said paraphrased that yeah like they were they were gonna ride for a sprint they were hoping to ride for a sprint uh, they had a couple other teams that they knew were interested in the sprint opposite and phoenix and, and israel startup nation most most obviously but they were also sort of prepared for for that chaos and once it kicked off they were not not going to waste all their energy trying to hold that thing together for cav when they have the chomps ahead and they really really want to win there so that's what he said We weren't totally off base. We were just completely off base. 100% off base while also not being 100% off base. (laughs) (laughs) It it was a surprise, but maybe we shouldn't be surprised. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Correct. Well, before we get into uh, some details of tomorrow's stage, let's hear from Jose Bain.
3: It's stage 20, and we have a time trial again. Last year, we were all treated to the most amazing Tour de France time trial in recent history. Primoz Roglic had ruled the Tour de France until then and only faced an uphill time trial to La Planche des Filles to cement his place in history to become the first Slovenian winner of the Tour. Until he wasn't that Slovenian. Well, we all know what happened on Stage 20 last year and we will all remember that for a long time. Today's time trial is rather flat. We're still in the wine region with an intermediate point in Pomerol. Remember that very expensive wine I told you about yesterday. And the finish is in Saint-Emilion. Saint-Emilion is a medieval city surrounded by vines and it's been listed as the UNESCO World Heritage Site and it was the first wine growing area in the world to have this prestigious label. The legend tells us about a monk from Brittany who sought refuge in one of the natural caves in a place called Ascombus, which is the former name of the village. This was all in the 8th century. The monk's name was Emilion, He lived the life of a hermit and he accomplished a few miracles and rapidly became famous in the region and even far beyond the border. Soon, he had many disciples and with their help, he evangelized that place and made it become a great religious center. Even after he died, his followers carried on his legacy and even called the town after him, Saint-Emilion. Today's television images will be absolutely breathtaking and make you want to pack your bags and travel to France. For many viewers of the Tour de France, the castles, rivers, mountains, sunflowers and vineyards of France are the principal reason to watch the race. Commentators tell you all about the church we just passed or the abandoned chateau on the mountain top. And the French television even have a dedicated commentator whose only job is to explain what we see outside of the race. Franck's vocabulary is full of extraordinaire, magnifique and formidable. The Tour de France has a book where all the stages are mentioned in technical detail, but it also has a commentary book of 460 pages this year. Regions and towns pay money to the organisers to be shown to the world, and cycling is a fantastic way to showcase your country to a worldwide audience. So the regions and the towns hope that commentators also give you the touristic information during the broadcasts. I commentated on my first Tour de France in 2014, and the book has doubled in size ever since. It was an important source when I commentated for Eurosport, and it has been these past three weeks, giving you, cycling tips listeners, some background information about France.
0: That's that's uh, Ronan's pick for the Mile Sabla. Uh, has been since the start, apparently. No, no. No, just, just now? Just, just, now. Gonna just see him. now. He's,
1: he's going to lose two minutes tomorrow. And bang on.
0: I've, we've definitely used that song. He needs to do more things for us. <laughs> yes. Like He needs to do more in the bike race, so we have an excuse to use that song again. So tomorrow, TT, It's uh, it starts and finishes not too far from where we are right now. In fact, it starts uh, in the town where we are, Le Bourne, and finishes over in Saint-Emilion. Uh, Emilion, excuse me. And it uh, it slowly rises. It gains like it finishes about fifty meters higher than it starts. Uh, but it's relatively flat around here, so it would be a pretty flat time trial. It is thirty one kilometers long. There are going to be a time check at seven point five and a time check at twenty. And none of this will really will really impact <laughs> anything, but. They'll go out there. They'll ride hard. There's still a stage win available, and the time trial specialists will absolutely want to take that away from Tade Pogacar. As we said last time, Pogacar definitely benefited from from much better uh, conditions, weather conditions than the last time trial. Some of the real heavy hitters of the time trial, uh, they went early in the day, and it was raining. It was windy. It was nasty. And Pagachar did not have to deal with that. Now tomorrow, the forecast is for lovely weather. It's going to be a little bit breezy, but in general, pretty lovely weather. So we shouldn't have that as an issue.
1: Yeah, and even since that first time trial, I've heard that the wind conditions during the day actually picked up, and it it was a course that really favored uh, the the one sort of section where the the riders were exposed to the wind was a tailwind section, and it, and the wind really actually picked up towards the end, and and sort of. Bogacha as well but yeah he was still time drilling at the same time as <laughs> watch van art and a couple other uh of the favorites of that stage so um certainly can't be certainly can't be ruled out for tomorrow's stage but I I don't think he will take
0: it tomorrow it's real flat it's real flat and it's got be a it's got to be a Stefan Kung or a or a, a Stefan Bissiger. could be a battle of the Steffens could tomorrow this was Stephens. Yeah. Stefan v. Stefan. Uh I think I I think I I think I put some uh some money on Brandon McNulty ahead of the first one. It actually wasn't that bad a shout. He just he crashed. Who's your pick for tomorrow?
1: I'm going for Bessiger again. I went from ahead of the first time trial. He got the worst of the conditions, was still third in that. Um so I'm going for Bessiger again. Exactly. He he was he, he was can I say pissed? <laughs> yeah. He was properly pissed after the finish <laughs> of the last one. Uh, the last the last time trail. He was he was pretty damn annoyed. Uh, just about the conditions he'd got. Um so yeah, I, I think he's gonna we haven't said or heard his name this week. Not surprising because he's in the mountains, but still he's uh, I think he's putting everything on on tomorrow.
0: He's a big lad. He is. He's um I don't know, can we say this? Is he He's built like a brick shit house. <laughs> he's, <a boss>. <laughs> <laughs> he's like you know, most of the riders go by and you're like, all right, tiny man, tiny man, tiny man, tiny man, tiny man, and then Bisiger goes by and he's like Like you know the difference between like a greyhound and then like a like a bulldog? <laughs> it's that, basically. It's it's like that. Yeah, he's 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 a big fella. Not like huge, tall or anything like that. Just just like Strong. It's mm. really strong looking. He's a tank. A tank. Brick shit house. Whatever you want to, do. whatever you call him. <laughs> All right. So Bisker's your pick. I'm going to go with Stefan Kung. Big Stefan Kung fan, and uh, I think he's going to do it tomorrow. I'm pretty interested
1: to see tomorrow. Just you know, what sort of tech decisions some some of the teams go with, some of the riders go with, given that it's uh, what did we say thirty kilometers uh, with 239 meters of climbing. So it is. Effectively, pan flat. Um, it's it's just going to be all about arrow. There there is a bit of wind forecast from t- for tomorrow, but not enough to sort of influence what sort of wheels and that the, the riders will use. Um, but in the first time trial, we did see we've seen riders running with round arrow or round water bottles. We've seen riders going for lightweight options rather than the most aerodynamic option and i'm sort of keen to see if we see see the same tomorrow we're not the, f- the first time trial was was a bit hillier um but certainly you know no no reason to be thinking about weight tomorrow but we know how uh but we know how much of uh we know how much importance that walter writers still place on on weight um so uh, that that's sort of what i'm most looking forward to tomorrow rather than who actually wins the stage, or, or 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 what happens in in the GC battle that there doesn't really exist? But
0: tomorrow will be a giant nerd nugget on the podcast. Yeah. Yep.
1: I think I heard somewhere that if if uh, one of the, the two riders in second or third were to beat Pogaccia, they're going to have to ride at an average of sixty five kilometers per hour.
0: <laughs> you mean to take the five minutes back? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Or you know, Pogaccia falls down. Yeah, that could flats mm-hmm. three times.
1: Never say never. It, it's not over until even he crosses the line in Paris. Like it's, you know, the, the last day is often said to be you know sort of ceremonial parade around Paris, but it is raced in the final laps. George and
0: Bennett lost the mile sabla on the, on the champs. Hasn't been the same since. <laughs> <laughs> I think that still eats him up. I'm, I'm sure it does. Alright, everybody. We'll be back from tomorrow's time trial. Have a great one, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.